One of the things that we all have in common, whether uh, we're a Christian or not, but at least if we have some basic concept of belief in God, one of the things that we all have in common is we've all had seasons in our lives where we've asked God for something and he just hasn't done it. In fact, the three phrases that we've probably all used at some point in our lives to describe God are, he's silent, he doesn't act, or he's forgotten me. He's silent, he doesn't act, or he has forgotten me. Now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. I want you to be very, very honest. If there has ever been a time in your life where it's felt to you as though God has been either silent, he wasn't acting, or he's forgotten you, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. Okay, keep your hands up. I like everyone else just to have a good look round. Okay, I could just close in prayer right there, because you've just learned something crucially important. You thought it was just you. It's like the reason this is so very difficult for us a lot of the time is because when we feel that God is silent, when it feels to us as though he's not acting, when it feels as though he's forgotten me, we can feel like we're the only ones. And there are a couple of things that make this even worse for us. One of them is people like me, preachers. We can stand up here at the front and make it all sound very, very easy and incredibly simple. All you need is more faith. All you need to do is pray harder. All you need is to repent and get rid of all the sin from your life. And the message you can hear is that, really, it's all your fault. The reason God is silent, the reason God's inactive, the reason that God appears disinterested is because of you. I can be left thinking, everyone else has more faith than me. Everyone else is praying longer than I do. Everyone else is more holy than me, more spiritual than me, and their lives are all together. They don't face the problems I face, so it must be my fault. The other thing that makes this difficult for us is when we look at the lives of the people around us who don't even believe in God, and their lives appear to be working out just fine. They have a job. They got married. Their kids got into whatever school they wanted to. In fact, Their kids seem to behave impeccably. And you look at these people for whom life just goes well, and you're like, well, they're not even good people. It's not fair. They don't even go to church, and yet their lives seem to be so much easier than mine. Here I am, trying to do the right thing, trying to live the right way, and yet life just isn't going well for me. Or we can be at life group. And someone shows up and shares how... They were in a hurry one day and they prayed for a parking space and immediately one became available right in front of them. And you're thinking, I'm asking God for a job. I'm asking God for a medical breakthrough. I'm asking God for a change in this relationship. And God answered your prayer for a parking space. I mean, (laughs) you you don't want to hear that kind of thing. You don't want to be in a small confined space with a small group of people who are like that. It's just infuriating. In fact, maybe that is why some of you have started drifting away from the church. And for some reason, you've come along today and inwardly you're kicking and screaming because you've got a story to tell. And you're sitting there right now thinking, well, this guy had better not make it seem easy because it's not easy. That This guy had better not give me some easy-to-follow formula because 
You know it's not as straightforward as that a lot of the time. Others of you, you don't want to give up on faith, but it is a constant struggle. Sometimes it feels to you as though you're trapped. You can't not believe in God, but there are times where believing in God only seems to make it harder for you. So the question is, what do you do? What do you do when it seems like God's silent, he doesn't act, and he's forgotten me? Because after a while, if we don't do anything about it, if we don't address those thoughts and feelings, our faith begins to erode, and we begin to conclude, well, if God's silent, then he must be absent. And if God doesn't answer my prayers and act in the way I think he should, well, then maybe there isn't actually a God after all. Or if it feels like God's forgotten me, then perhaps he's not all that interested in my life, so I might as well just live as I want to. And before we know it, there goes my faith. I don't know about you, but although I love the great promises in the Bible, I love reading the Psalms, I love the theological passages. But what I like the most are those stories about people who clearly love God and are definitely loved by Him, and yet they experience some of the same frustrations I experience. Because even though there is no simple answer, there is no 30-minute counselling session that will resolve everything, even though this series we're launching today isn't going to get you a job isn't going to get you married, isn't going to change your marriage, isn't going to get your kids into the schools you want, isn't going to solve all of your financial problems. There is a confidence we can have that even through those times, God is still with me. And I don't have to associate the difficulty of life with the character and goodness of God. So here's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. I'm going to tell you three stories. They're found in the New Testament. They're three stories about three men who loved God. And yet at the same time, they felt like God was either silent, he wasn't acting, or he had forgotten them. One of these guys, Jesus actually said, was like the greatest person who had ever lived. And yet he felt like God was silent. One of these guys, God had called him to do some extraordinary stuff and he was as faithful as it was possible to be and he had one very simple prayer request and God said no. One of these guys, Jesus loved so much that his name isn't even used. He's just referred to as the one Jesus loved. I mean, how's that for a relationship? And yet it still seemed to him like God had forgotten him. And here's what I hope we all take away from the next three weeks. I hope we all walk away and realise that we can go through wilderness seasons. We can go through times where we feel distant from God. Periods that are so tough and challenging that all the evidence suggests that God is silent, that he just doesn't act, that he has forgotten us. We can go through those times with our faith intact. So let's start with the first story. The first story actually begins before the first story begins, if you understand what I mean. It begins with a guy called King Herod the Great. The name was somewhat ironic because he really wasn't a great guy. He had a whole bunch of wives, 
murdered two of them. He also murdered three of his own sons and one of his mother's-in-law. Now, you might not get on particularly well with your mother-in-law, but killing them is really quite extreme. This is the same Herod who sent the soldiers into Bethlehem to slaughter all the babies when he heard a rumour that Jesus, a new king, had been born there. This was perfectly in keeping with Herod's character. That's how evil he was. He was so evil that when he realised he was about to die, he had his soldiers round up all the leading citizens and imprison them, and then on the day he died, they were ordered to execute all the leading citizens so as to ensure that Herod's death was greeted with mourning. Now, once he finally died, the kingdom, his kingdom, was split between two of his sons. And those two sons, along with a third son, are all part of this story. To confuse matters, they're all called Herod. The other key player in the story is a niece of Herod, and her name originally was Herodias. Herodias fell in love with one of her cousins, Herod, and they had a daughter, they kind of branched out on this one, she was called Siloam. So a little bit of novelty in the family somewhere. Following what I'm saying, following all of this, you can kind of see the family tree in front of you. Well, some of you are looking slightly puzzled. It gets even more confusing because Herodias then falls in love with her husband's brother. So uh, she falls in love with Herod's brother, Herod, and she runs off with him to Galilee. And they live in this magnificent palace as king and queen of Galilee. And everything's going swimmingly and wonderfully well until the entrance of the person that we're really going to be focusing in on today. His name was John the Baptist. You might have heard of him. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. And God sent John ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. John's message was really a very simple one. He'd go around saying, just knock it off. Whatever you're doing wrong, just stop it. Wherever he went, He told people to repent, and the reason he told people to repent, to knock it off, to stop it, was that God was about to do something quite spectacular. He was about to do something very new, and he wanted people to be ready and prepared for it. And as long as there was sin in people's lives, they wouldn't be ready. So John was like this in-your-face kind of guy. And he was a hero of all the common people because he appeared to be afraid of no one. He'd just say what was on his mind no matter what the consequences were. The problem was, when Herodias moved into the palace with the new king Herod, it was against the Jewish law. And although none of the Herods were Jews, it was offensive to the Jewish people. And so John the Baptist began preaching out loud right in the middle of the public square against the sin of Herodias for running off and marrying her husband's brother. Now, when Herodias hears about all of this, she goes to her husband Herod and says, we have got to get John the Baptist out of the way. And Herod agrees because he's slightly concerned that John might lead some kind of an uprising. I mean, he's very popular. People are rallying around him. It could lead to some kind of overthrow in the kingdom. So he seizes John and throws him into prison. That's the context. That's the background to the story. If you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in Mark and in Matthew. We're going to start off in Mark chapter 6. Well, we kind of get a synopsis of this whole story. Mark 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Herod himself 
had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, also called Herod uh, uh, and Philip as well, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John He was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. It's like Herod was intrigued by John. He knew his wife wanted John dead, but there was something about John that just fascinated him. Now, let's be honest, that wasn't a whole load of consolation to John. I mean, he's still in prison. This is kind of tough for him. See, John the Baptist had been sent by God to announce Jesus... And he had done that. One day, Jesus walks up, John the Baptist shouts out at the top of his voice, you know the one I've been telling you about, here he is, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the whole world. John actually announced the arrival of Jesus. He had a whole load more insight even than Jesus' own disciples. One day, John said to his own disciples, his own followers, look, I really appreciate you guys following me, but actually, you need to follow Jesus now. I mean, he's way greater than I am. Another time, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come up to John. They ask whether John was the Messiah. Perhaps he thought about it for a while. I mean, "Mm -mm. here's an opportunity. But he answered them straight back, no, 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 it's not me. One is coming after me who is even greater than I am, and I'm not even worthy to lace his sandals. It's like John had done everything that God had asked him to do and some. He was courageous. He was faith-filled. He was very humble. He was a phenomenal prophet and preacher, yet he refused to take glory to himself. He knew ultimately it was all about Jesus. And yet now he is in prison for doing the right thing. So if ever there was a time for a miracle, surely this was it. And yet John was left to rot away in prison. Now, John had friends who come and visit him in prison and give him information about what Jesus was doing. He'd heard the reports that Jesus was out there doing some remarkable miracles, healing the sick, left, right and centre. He was healing lepers, uh, even Roman servants. It's like he was doing all sorts of things for complete and utter strangers, but he wasn't doing anything for his own cousin. And as a result, John began to have second thoughts about Jesus. And so one day when his friends are visiting him, he says, look, guys, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I wonder if you could send a message to Jesus for me. Here it is. It's found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? They're like, you sure you want us to ask him that? I mean, John, you're the one who told us he was the one. John's going, I know, but I'm beginning to have some serious doubts here. You can imagine them going, whoa, hold on a moment. I mean, you've heard the stories of what he's doing out there. Yeah, but I just need a little bit of extra assurance right now. 
Now here's why I believe this is so important for us. It's interesting how whenever our circumstances take a sudden change, either for the better or for the worse, it can dramatically impact our own personal confidence in God. And none of us are immune to this. I don't know, maybe you went away to college And that time was the lowest in terms of your faith. You had more fun than ever, but less faith than ever. You had no dependence on God because you felt you didn't need him. It's like knowing him was an inconvenience. What happened? A sudden change of environment, a sudden change of your circumstances, and there goes your faith. Or maybe you moved into Birmingham and you got your first real job and now you're earning more money than you've ever earned before and you're surrounded by people with a complete different set of values to you and all of a sudden the things that were important to you aren't quite so important anymore. It's like your faith is impacted. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're more like John the Baptist Suddenly things aren't so good in your life. You've gone a long time without a good job. Your health issues are beginning to take their toll. God isn't answering your prayers for your kids. You're still single or your marriage is wearing you down to the extent you wish you were still single. Your circumstances take a turn for the worse and your faith is impacted. It's like somehow God becomes different because our circumstances different. And although it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, it's real, isn't it? And maybe you're embarrassed to admit it in public, but you need a little help right now. You need some kind of a sign. You need a word from God. You need some personal assurance. You, You need to know that it's not all a lie or a figment of your imagination. Because it's not all working out for you at the moment. Now, before we jump back into the story, I just need to say this. And I'll say it because I care enough for you to say the tough things sometimes. There is something very self-centered and incredibly selfish about losing faith in God when our own circumstances go bad. Isn't it interesting, for example, that when we hear on the news about an earthquake or a famine that takes the lives of hundreds of people, maybe wrecks the future of thousands and thousands more, our response is one of horror. And so we pray for them. Perhaps we give to them. But it doesn't ultimately shatter our own belief in God. You see, when you go through a hard time, I'm concerned. I pray. But when I go through a hard time, eventually I begin to doubt. Now why is that? Why is it that I lose faith when God appears inattentive to my happiness and not yours. In other words, when you go through a tough time, I'm very sorry for you, and I'll pray, and I will be there for you. But at the end of the day, I don't go home and lose my faith over it. Why is it that in a season of spiritual dryness 
an apparent inactivity by God in our own lives personally that we are so prone to our faith eroding. Oh, it doesn't make sense. But it happens, doesn't it? I think part of it is this. That in a season of pain and turmoil and difficulty, we tend to shrink right down to the size of us. Our lives and our worldview shrinks down to the size of me. And that's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Because you know as well as I do that there's only a certain amount of pain that makes it very hard to care about anyone or anything else. There's a point at which you can be in so much agony physically, mentally, emotionally, that you're unable to care for anyone but yourself. It's the nature of pain. It shrinks us to the size of us. And so consequently, here's John the Baptist with all that he's seen, all that he's experienced, everything that he knows. And suddenly, his world is no bigger than his prison cell. And he begins to doubt. And that's what I think makes Jesus' response so incredibly amazing and so incredibly relevant to all of us. Let me tell you what Jesus doesn't say. John's friends come up to him, tell him that his cousin's in prison. He's a little confused by it all. They say, I know it's a little bit embarrassing, Jesus, but John's beginning to wonder if he's made a mistake. He's beginning to doubt that you are who he thought you were. Here's what Jesus doesn't say. Of course I'm the one. I'll just go back and tell him he was right all along. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, yeah, I'm the one. And I'm going to break him out. He doesn't say that. Here's the message he sends back to John the Baptist. And I believe that this is for each of us when God seems silent in our lives. Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. Because John can't hear and see past the prison. He can't see past his immediate situation. So you've got to go back and tell him what you hear and see. You've got to go and tell him of the activity of God outside of his prison cell. Because John's a prisoner to what he can hear and what he can see. It's like his prison cell has shrunk him down to that size. His vision is no larger than his pain. And so it's no wonder he's beginning to doubt. So you need to expand his vision. And then Jesus lists some of the things he wants them to report. Verse 5. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And get this, I don't quite know how to communicate this so you do get it. I I wish somehow I could blow it right up so you wouldn't miss this, so you would never ever forget this. Jesus says, here's the most important thing. Make sure you tell John this. 
Verse 6. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is anyone who does not fall away on account of me. What? I mean, is Jesus saying that he might actually sometimes do things, or at least allow things, that might cause us to stumble or fall away? That's exactly what he's saying. Which is why it's so important we get this message. Blessed is the person, blessed is anyone who doesn't fall away on account of anything that Jesus has or hasn't done. So Jesus knows that John's in prison. He knows his situation is getting worse and he's losing faith. And he knows that ultimately it's down to him. It's because Jesus has left him there, hasn't rescued him hasn't even come to visit. It's like he's been completely silent. You're kind of wondering as you read this, I mean, doesn't Jesus like John? I mean, has John done something wrong? When they were growing up together, did he do something to annoy Jesus? Is he being punished for some reason? Let's listen to what Jesus says about John. Verse 11, I'll tell you the truth. Among those born of women, which would be just about everyone, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Oh, Jesus, you're, you're saying that John is the greatest guy who's ever lived so far, but, but you're still going to leave him in prison? Jesus kind of responds, yeah, and, and tell him to hang on in there. Don't lose your faith just because I've chosen not to bail you out of prison. Show the way you look at this. It's pretty tough, isn't it? It's like John was going to be in prison no matter how much faith he had, no matter how hard or how long he prayed, no matter how obedient, how holy, how spiritual he was. He was in prison because ultimately it was part of God's plan for him. And Jesus knew that It'd be hard for him to maintain his faith. But he chose, for whatever reason, not to rescue him. Now let me tell you why this is such great news for us today. It means this. That your personal circumstances do not necessarily correspond with how God feels about you. And you mustn't ever, ever lose sight of that. Because like John the Baptist, when we're in a dry season, where we're in the wilderness, when it feels like God's silent, we can draw the conclusion that my circumstances reflect how God feels about me. And God says, no, they don't. Don't ever draw that conclusion. Proof of how God feels about you lies in what happened at the cross. When Jesus willingly took your sin, your shame, your guilt, your condemnation on himself and was nailed on the cross bearing the wrath of his Father for you. He bled and died for you. Proof of how God feels about you lies in the cross, not what's happening at school right now, 
not what's happening at home, not what's not happening at work or what not, what's not happening in your love life or with your kids. Don't make the mistake of hanging your faith and your hope and your confidence on what God appears to be doing in your life at any given moment in time. John the Baptist was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was the cousin of Jesus. He was family. He was the forerunner to Jesus. He had faithfully lived out God's call on his life. And now he's in prison. Jesus leaves him there and says, by the way, John, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is anyone who does not fall away on account of me. So what do you do when God seems silent? What do you do? Well, I think if we were to ask Jesus, he would give us the same advice that he gave John. You look back and remember. He said that to us even as we were worshipping earlier on. Remember, look back over your life, remember. And you look outside your circumstance and you reflect on the activity of God. Look at what God is doing in the church. Look at every time we baptise people, and there are people up at the front here sharing how God has saved them. Look at all the lives that are being changed. Look at the sites we're launching, multiplying as a church. Look at, what's God, look at what God's doing in other churches in this nation. In the, uh, in the newspapers last weekend, there were reports of growth in the church and how maybe the kind of spiritual decline was over-reported, or at least it's being turned around again. Look at what God's doing in this nation. Look at reports of what God is doing in other nations. Revivals that are sweeping parts of Asia and South America right now. Reports of the dead being raised, the lame walking, the blind seeing. Kind of things that Jesus was seeing when he was walking on earth. Look outside your circumstance. Reflect on the activity of God. And if that doesn't help you because you think, well... Why is God doing it for them but not for me? Which is kind of where John was at. Reflect on those times when God did come through for you. As God is encouraging us as we're worshipping, remember, remember what he's done for you. Because what's happening now doesn't discount the reality of answered prayers in the past. That difficult patch you had in your marriage and God came through. When you had a difficult time as a teenager and God broke in and transformed your life, all those past occurrences, all that past activity of God was real. It is true. And you need to look outside your current prison and remember and remember and remember. And you take courage from the fact that God was real then and he's just as real now, even if he's not expressing his reality in the way that you would like him to. You know, the story doesn't end well for John. Remember what happens? Herod has a birthday. Herodias sends her daughter from a different marriage to dance for Herod and his friends. And it must have been quite some dance because Herod offers her whatever she asks for up to half his kingdom. And she does what I'm sure all teenage girls do, She goes away and asks her mum's advice. And that's what happens, isn't it? And Herodias tells her, 
you ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. I mean, she could have anything up to half the kingdom. You ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. And because Herod didn't want to lose face with his friends, well, he sends his soldiers to the prison and they behead John, the cousin of Jesus. And it's not too long after that that some religious leaders pay to have Jesus himself betrayed and arrested and crucified. And God does nothing to stop that either. But God didn't move one millimetre off the centre of his throne. Because even though he appeared silent, even though he appeared inactive, even though he appeared far away, God was right where he wanted to be and events unfolded just as he had ordained. And though it wasn't a script that John the Baptist would have written for himself, and at the end of Jesus' life, if you remember, he actually pleaded with his father if there was any other way. But his heavenly father said, no, this is my plan. And now, 2,000 years on, we're still talking about it. And we're still celebrating it. People's lives are still being transformed by what seemed to be the inactivity and the silence of the very God these two men followed. When God's silent, he's not absent. When God doesn't seem to be acting, it doesn't mean he isn't acting. When it seems as though God has forgotten, he really hasn't forgotten. It just means that in the midst of those circumstances, we need to look back and reflect and we need to look outside of our prison walls and consider what God is doing all around us. And here's the best part. If you haven't been paying attention up until now, listen to this. If you've kind of of zoned out and become a little glazed, I can see it all from here. You come back right now. Because it might appear a little weird and you might think I've gone a little loopy, but... In that interaction between Jesus and John's friends, I think Jesus was sending you a secret message. I think he sent a secret message to every single follower of Jesus down through the centuries. And here's the secret message that I'm going to decode for you. You ready? Here it is. Blessed is the man... Blessed is the woman, blessed is anyone who does not fall away on account of me. And guess who you are in that statement? You're the anyone. Jesus reaches way beyond the first century context and speaks directly into our lives today. And he gives us this vital message. Blessed is anyone who does not fall away, stumble, lose faith, give up hope on account of me. Blessed means blessed by God. It means he's paying attention. He notices. He knows your circumstances. He will do good to you in the end. And there's a promise at the end of your faithfulness. If you'll remain faithful in spite of what Jesus hasn't done for you lately, in spite of the fact that nothing is changing for you, He sees right into the heart of your situation. He says, don't give up. Blessed are you when you remain faithful and refuse to fall away on account of me. So as we begin this series together, here's what I want you to go away and think about. As perhaps things don't change, as maybe God hasn't honoured your prayers, as possibly God hasn't changed your circumstances, 
you can still remain faithful. You can wake up every single day knowing that God loves you just as much now as he has ever loved you and ever will love you. Because your current circumstances aren't necessarily a reflection of how God feels about you. I mean, if he allowed the greatest man ever to have lived to rot away in prison before being beheaded, and yet he was family. I mean, he was Jesus' own cousin. He he was dearly loved by Jesus. And surely you never, ever have to doubt his love for you, his concern for you, his will for you, his plan for you, his ability to take what seems like wasted time and blend it in something far greater than anything you've ever imagined. Because he may be silent, but he isn't absent. Blessed are all of us who refuse to fall away on account of Jesus. Let's pray.